0: I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Lucy Clark is a dream interviewee. Of course, her position as president of Marsh Specialty and Global Placement gives her a view of the market that only a very few peers would be able to rival. But it is her smart, no-nonsense and direct personality that immediately stands out. Given the global market is in such an agitated and interesting state, this makes for a really compelling and enlightening podcast. Lucy is a breath of fresh air, and a really lively and charismatic interviewee. If I was a client, I would love to have her fighting my corner with underwriters. I'm really glad to get her on the show and highly recommend this episode to anyone wishing to navigate to the late stages of this extremely challenging hard global insurance market. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsey, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as US-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA Claim Service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today.
0: Lucy, welcome to The Voice of Insurance.
2: Thank you, Mark. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Oh, it's really great to get you on the show, actually. We're sitting here, one of the most interesting renewal seasons for a really long time. The market's been in a growth phase, but in a difficult place. So why don't you give us an overview of that market and tell us about where all the areas for growth are. And Obviously, there's all these client problems that need solving. and Tell us about what you're doing to solve those. Okay,
2: that's an easy one. Um, I guess just in terms of the areas of growth, I think those are pretty easy. For us, they're probably cyber for most people. But I also think construction, renewable energy, private equity, the advisory piece of ESG. I think those will be big growth areas. But we've seen growth in almost every line and in almost every region. And I expect those trends will continue throughout 22. In terms of problems or maybe challenges in the market, I guess I always call out pricing first. That is a real challenge for our clients. And probably, you know, we published this thing called Global Insurance Market Pricing Index. So in the third quarter, that was our 16th straight quarter of pricing increases that we track. So I think, you know, four years of pricing increases, that is brutal. And the trend is moderating, so that's good. I think the top quarter was the fourth quarter of 2020. That was 22%, 18 in the first quarter, 15 in the second, 15 in the third, and probably we'll see a decreased number when we get the data for the fourth quarter. But our kind of perspective on those pricing increases for our clients and probably one of the most stressful environments that they've ever been in Enough is enough on those. And so we're pushing back really hard on those pricing increases.
0: So would you say that clients have kind of had enough now?
2: 100%. Yeah.
0: Because it's probably 16 quarters is one of the longest periods of hardening. I always remember hard markets as being brutal, but usually short. quite short. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Double everything. And then at least then we can start easing off again.
2: Yeah, I think brutal and long is not a great combination. And the timing it's difficult for our clients. And you've seen clients... Making decisions with that, right? You've seen more activity in captives, people buying less limit or taking higher retentions or doing um, whatever's required to mitigate the impact on them. So that pricing environment, that's a big focus for us.
0: So is one of the ones you mentioned. So I think people would say that's the most dislocated market. Again, with a business like Marshall Specialty and Global Placement, you've got a lot more tools than other brokers at your disposal. And I always remember historically the MMC companies have, when we've had really bad dislocation have been able to be joined up and almost even go to the point of creating, you know, we created what's now the Bermudian market through MMC Capital back in the day. Obviously, when there's a shortage of capital, are you connected now to try and solve some of those capital shortages?
2: So maybe I'll back up just a second and pick up the cyber question that you raise.
0: I mean, one, is it really dislocated or is it just differentiated? It, is, it seems to be there's some of the, yeah. we've had a lot of miscommunication about this. Certainly at uh, Lloyd's, you know, I was involved in sort of fighting with people on social media saying, well, you know, Patrick <laughs> Tiernan was saying, actually, there's going to be exposure growth for plenty, but actually there's a bit of a clear out of some of the other ones who were just tagging along and weren't really adding any value.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I think those comments from Patrick Tiernan were, you know, moderately encouraging, but a little bit more capacity won't fix this. And, you know, I think the last 24 months, it's really a combination of real dramatic price increases, coverage restrictions, severe capacity pullback. And, you know, for our clients, that's really an untenable combination. And so if we were to continue on that same path, the market will have a credibility issue with that cyber product. It's a critical line of coverage for our clients to buy. They want to buy it. But if we're on this path, self-insurance will have to be so an option.
0: With the big clients of the sort of that you be dealing with on a day-to-day basis, presumably, it suddenly becomes you don't have meaningful limits to yeah, offer them anymore. It
2: has to be meaningful. And in terms of creating capacity, actually creating capacity for cyber is one of the highest priorities. And, you know, we manage one of the biggest cyber facilities in the world, and that is a really great way for people who have cyber capacity. There's lots of CY codes in Lloyd's that aren't writing cyber. That's a way for people to get some exposure to that risk led by really credible leaders with a long-term track record. And so I would say that's our biggest priority is trying to address that problem. Actually, I
0: had a podcast with Adrian Cox recently, the CEO of BC, and being almost synonymous with cyber. Yeah he said, actually, one of their solutions, obviously, was not to go and exclude ransomware. That's not the intention, because that would mean that the product was becoming irrelevant. But to get closer to the client and really use this as an opportunity to say, this is obviously a problem that probably has an engineering solution. He almost described it as FM global solution, the kind of, hey, you may not like this, but you're going to have to put sprinklers in all your factories, but then you won't have any fires, and then you'll be happy with your new premiums.
2: Yeah, maybe for some clients, that is a a good approach. I think for a lot of clients that we have, they're highly sophisticated buyers. And, you know, I think one of the things about the cyber market that's, I know this is not supposed to be a cyber market rant, but it's really hard for clients to be able to satisfy underwriters, 350 question questionnaire. And different questionnaires for different markets, you know, it's a real burden on clients. So you I know, mean, trying to streamline that and make it easier for our clients would be a good thing.
0: So these are the areas that you're working on, presumably, that it's going to have a technological solution. Some of these things, you don't need to fill in a proposal form anymore. Presumably, right. now you just get some sort of electronic sniffing device again, it already comes back and tells you what systems they're running, etc.,
2: I guess so. I guess Adrian will tell us that.
0: (laughs) But so do you think that there's some end in sight in that some of the cyber players or sort of we're at this differentiating point between the ones who are going to be backed into the future and the ones that probably aren't, have had that capacity withdrawn. Do you see some stability returning to cyber soon and growth?
2: I think that we feel that there's a recognition probably from the markets. It's not that we disagree that the markets and we disagree on what needs to happen? It's just finding our way through. So I think we feel pretty optimistic that the markets are looking for a way through, and that there are certain markets looking for exposure to cyber that perhaps haven't written it in the past. So really, creating that capacity in a meaningful product is—I do think there's reason to be optimistic about that.
0: So then it'll be something that will go back to growth and exposure growth at some point. You've got a feeling that the good—the good. I'm not sure will... the
2: the bad part's done. You know, we may have to go a bit further and see the reaction of clients to really get the results that we need from the market.
0: Because presumably there have been some clients who wouldn't really want to fill in a big form, who in the softer market when everything was sort of growth-a-go-go of the last five years wouldn't have had to give a lot of information because they'd be able to get quite a lot of cover without having to give any information. Presumably we'll flush those people out to say, well, now you do have to say exactly what systems you're running and what you do and what are your risk management, hygiene practices, etc.,
2: Yeah, I think we're past any idea that a client might not need to give very much underwriting information, like they're happy to do that. It's just being able to do that in a uniform way so that they're not replicating the exercise with every market in a slightly different way.
0: Oh, it's so boring, isn't it? And, you yeah. Know, when you get a client to answer 40 questions and, and then you get a new question it wasn't even on the proposal for yeah. Them, you. Yeah, oh, and, and
2: it's that, that is the kind of vibe, you know, right now in a market that's already a very stressful experience for people.
0: Yeah, so you're saying you know, clients have had enough of this kind of death by 16 cuts. Um, what are the other hot spots or difficult spots where there's pain points?
2: I would say maybe two other broad categories. So cyber is really specific. But if I could say the things that are hard for clients and pick a couple of points, I would probably choose, we're not sure that we're getting the kind of differentiated underwriting that we would like to see, right? We've talked about four years of broad increases, and it feels like there's a a wish to impose certain levels of increases on certain classes. And so getting that differentiated underwriting focus is really important. So, I don't think we've got enough of that. We're trying to do as much as we can in terms of data and information to support underwriters right in making those kind of decisions. So that's a, a real frustration, that differentiated underwriting piece. And and probably I would also add in a, a more broad category, is this this imposition of broad exclusionary language. So obviously I'm thinking about communicable disease, silent cyber, the new climate change Exclusion and imposing this kind of exclusionary language has the potential to cut out big swathes of coverage unintentionally. And so our focus is really on preserving those fundamental coverages for our clients. But we have the situation where we risk losing coverage if we accept certain of these clauses. There's millions of different ones. And it's just an impossible position for a client to try to navigate different clauses from different markets. And so that is also a kind of fight back on the silent cyber and on communicable disease. That's a real focus as well.
0: And some of these exclusions, they usually end up creating a new market, someone who will write it, but in a focused way. And saying, obviously, it's unfair on a property underwriter to suddenly expect them to become a cyber expert. But if you're doing the cyber alone property or whatever, is it going to create new classes?
2: I guess that I would say to that. I really don't want our clients to pay twice. And so to me, I would rather get very clear what coverage we're giving and not giving and not just create another market so that there's another tower of coverage to charge for. So that's a frustrating area for us as well.
0: But then you're doing your job as a broker, you're being good advocates for your client, you're fighting all this stuff tooth and nail. Well, that sounds really, really interesting. What, what else is going on? There is some differentiation at a very high level, it seems, in the early reports about the reinsurance renewals, seeing much softer, relatively, conditions for casualty in the US. We're seeing increasing seeding commissions, very interesting. We'll see how that bubbles through to the market as those renewals then kick in, and the effects of those renewals start being playing out next year. But then we're having a massive pullback on property cat and European property cat having a big of a standoff and obviously retro still having this drought. How's that playing out? Do you seeing that differentiation? Is the market more pro casualty and anti property cat? Or is that just really, really too generalist? Because obviously, when you get to your level, you're talking about really specific clients with really specific problems. But what about cat exposure, for example?
2: Well, cat exposure is a tough area. And so we're not I read something yesterday about exactly what you're talking about. Maybe it was your thing.
0: Uh, well, it certainly wasn't me. I, I would have probably okay. just sort of retweeting <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway, report.
2: But today, I wouldn't say we've suddenly seen the casualty market ease up or the cap market get more difficult. But perhaps that will bleed into 22 when we see the impact on the renewals when we start doing renewals in, at 1-1. But whether or not what happens in the reinsurance market has the direct impact we expect in, in our market we're sometimes surprised. We expect something to happen and it doesn't. So I think there's a wide recognition that when people talk about rating adequacy, most people are there. And so we're expecting relief in the direct market, whatever happens in the reinsurance market.
0: So do you think everything's going to start easing off at this renewal? Or do you think at some point in the future, is it the last heave now?
2: Easing off is so relative, isn't it? Because... Those numbers we talked about, about those price rises, 15% as an average in the third quarter is still a 15% rise. So I'm expecting the the moderation trend to continue, but I don't think the bottom's going to fall out of it at this renewal season.
0: So you're not seeing anything specific in things like casualty then? Because what the implication of that reinsurance renewal, that softer reinsurance renewal, is that clearly some underwriters at the very high at the food chain are less worried than they've said they've been I about know. inflation and social yeah. inflation. Yeah. And that's odd when we have 5% actual normal inflation and goodness knows what's happening on top with social inflation.
2: Yeah, I think that that part of it is really interesting considering how many high profile people have been talking about what a problem this issue is.
0: Yes, it was very odd. Everyone's been saying they were worried about it. and Now we're seeing but it couldn't be, you know, we we're talking about multiple large treaties mm. covering huge swathes of the market and actually getting, you know, three or four percent extra seeding commission. Yeah. There seems to be a big difference between what people are saying, and what they're actually doing. Yeah, yeah. But then it seems to be opposite on the property cat side, which is interesting. You still feel that in your property cat exposed, property clients are feeling the pinch there where they're getting squeezed. Or... They, they've
2: been feeling the pinch yeah. for, for the, like, this is not a new experience for them, right? But I, mean...
0: then I suppose most of them will have had losses. Yes. Yeah,
2: a lot of them have. And so I think that that will continue to be an area of challenge. I was surprised about the casualty, the seating commission comment. But um, any relief um, on casualty will be a sort of not before time from our client's perspective.
0: Because, yes, from your perspective, they're already well through rate adequacy. Yeah. And we should have been in the sort of chipping a little bit off every renewal step phase by now.
2: Yes, I would like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: What else I think you said a few things at the beginning remind me what else uh, is still causing problems for clients and pain points
2: I guess maybe I'm not necessarily saying this is a problem but it's an issue that everybody kind of needs to be together to solve is the ESG question Yeah you know I think that's really interesting and baffling for some people and it's really not a It's not an oil and gas problem or just a hard-to-abate sector like mining or steel problem. It's something that's facing all of our clients. The other thing is, okay, we talk about it all the time, but it's not like a new thing. People have been doing corporate social responsibility and governance for a really long time, but now being faced with who wants to know what from me and what is required of me as a client, what do I need to provide you as underwriting information? I think that is a confusing area for clients. And, you know, we're taking it uh, hugely seriously. Amy Barnes is leading our climate and sustainability effort. And and Ryan Bond, who was the CEO of Bowering Marsh, has just joined um, as kind of head of insurance product innovation for climate and sustainability. So we're trying to develop actual meaningful products that help our clients, rather than just say a lot. Because of- it's
0: almost become another thing you have to do any renewal yes. in any class of business. It's going yeah. to be, what is your ESG sort of score? Yeah. How's that going to impact you, etc. isn't it? Yeah. So it must be a massive headache. Presumably it's going to be a technological solution here. And there are certainly third-party vendors out there who are starting to do this. Obviously they're selling that to underwriters and presumably you'd want to have a copy of Uh, You want to know what the underwriters are going to be thinking about your client's risk,
2: exactly. And um, you know, we're talking to lots of the markets because this is a thing where collaboration is a really useful thing to make sure that clients know what to expect, and and we're all kind of working it out together. And but we've developed some very cool stuff. Our credit specialties team and our advisory people have developed a, a free to use ESG tool that helps clients assess their own risk at a more granular level than. A score that they might get from a a rating agency. And so I think that that helps them know what areas that they might need to focus on before they approach the market or in the future when this information becomes compulsory, um, should it become so.
0: The interesting thing is it has crept up on us and then suddenly it probably is happening, probably is happening. suddenly like in everything, when it finally does happen, we all seem to be surprised, but we probably shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. But there's never been so much focus. But so it's going to be something that's just going to be embedded in your workflow at some point, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I, I would say that the things that we're talking about the most are ESG and cyber. And so making sure that those challenging things for our clients, we're trying to help them uh, navigate uh, a little bit easier.
0: It's a fascinating market. I'm not envious of the amount of problems and things you're trying to solve, or at least the things. a lot of creative uh, solutions coming out there. So it's a good time to be a broker and have to come up with solutions, I presume.
2: Yeah, it is. And I'm hugely biased, of course, but London's an incredible market. There's nothing like it in the world. And I think it's performed so well, maybe to a lot of surprise for some of us, it's performed so well during COVID. That's good.
0: Well, no, I was going to ask you about that because, of course, you are a global insurance broker. You don't have to do business in London if you don't want to, if it's not the best place to do business. But so you're saying London's coming out pretty well out of all this. Yeah,
2: I think London's performed really well. We're always having these conversations about the relevance of London, you know. I feel like I'm always having that conversation for like 25 years. But London's super relevant and really important and kind of the center. But I think the things that are really cool about London and important for London to remember and maintain are are that kind of London responsiveness, London product innovation, flexibility, and that tendency to sort of respect the intent. You know, there's a real sort of history of that here. And I think that maintaining those things is really important for London.
0: So respect the intent of the client to come and honorably solve a problem
2: what I mean is I'm really thinking of tough claims. Yeah. And so what did I mean to cover? And if I meant to cover that, trying to find a way out of that, you know, I think that this market's very good at honoring claims.
0: We've had an amazing sort of revolution over the last five years, the amount of investment going into insure tech, as we now call it, insurance technology. Presumably, in your position, you get to see all sorts of interesting innovations. And I'd just like to ask, you know, what are the most interesting ones you've seen in the last few years and how you've interacted with them or tried to sort of incorporate them or sort of use their innovation to help solve problems for your clients?
2: I think that just an attempt to make it a practical answer. I think the most kind of practical example is maybe what Key are doing. You know, that to us feels simple. And, and that's
0: the sort of thing that, you know, yeah. you can be very relevant to each other. I yeah. presume that they were thinking of a broker of your size when they thought about this.
2: Yeah. Our brokers like it. Um, it works really well and it's smart and it works. And, you know, we talked earlier, didn't we, about some of these things that you don't know how they work or if they work. There is an example of something that's working. OK, they started at a great point in the cycle and they've got to get through a cycle. But we're really big fans of what they're doing. And I think there's something for all of us to learn in there.
0: Yeah. One of the learnings is about that. We've been talking about algorithmic underwriting, obviously key. Then does it it begets the question, obviously, you know, you talk to any underwriter in a bar anywhere in the world and after a couple of drinks. I say, You know, the problem is these brokers are so much cleverer than I am. They're always going to run rings around me one way. I always think I, I think I know what I'm doing. But I, I, have-
2: I promise you, I've <laughs> never in my life heard an underwriter say that in a bar. Well,
0: occasionally, occasionally. I- but, no, but no, not to broker. There's much to say it to me, you see, <laughs> yeah. as a third party when they're finally yeah. in a moment of lucidity. Yeah. Being completely honest, they go, yeah, actually, these guys, they've got 30% market share. I've only got two and a half. They do know more. They can go to other places. They can do things. They learn a lot very quickly. So do you think this algorithmic underwriting is going to sort of create effectively algorithmic broking? You know, what do you think about that?
2: Well, I think there is an element of yes to that question, but only like a small element. Because surely your
0: algorithms would be smarter than theirs, wouldn't they? Because they've got more information.
2: Well, that kind of single source algorithmic underwriting means that we can submit something very easily maybe go do some other broking things and come back and have competing quotes. And so something like that, it makes our job easier. And so there's a little piece of algorithmic broking, I guess, in there. But all we're trying to do is create competition and get the best product for our clients. And if algorithmic broking helps with that, then it may have a place.
0: I suppose when everything becomes seamless and you know back in the old days if you wanted to split a placement up into 16 slips and different ways of doing things you could because you could get it done that way and it might be cheaper but obviously it was a hell of a thing to process at the end of the day get the premium pay but now when you remove all the frictional costs you can have an unlimited number of slips. Do you think we're going to go to almost a fully fragmented sort of market in that sense of you know you place one thing you know, you place 100% of something at, at 100 different lines of 1% at all different prices and you end up this fantastic composite price to the client and you get the absolute best coverage at the best price.
2: That is a dream world, you know. And it doesn't I, quite exist yet. Yeah, it doesn't quite exist yet. And But that messy thing that you describe, which we all are so familiar with of, you know, trying to put together the very best program, making that frictionless is, that's what we're all trying to do. But, you know, I think we got a lot of work to do. I mean, one of the things, I'm not that new here, but I've been here three years and the You've data... You've been breaking for longer than that. Yeah, right? I've been working for longer than that. But really, the data is a phenomenal advantage. And so uh, being able to put that to work is great. It's just being able to have it work throughout the market. And that's, I know Lloyd's is trying to solve that challenge all the time.
0: In that world, which probably is not that far off, is it? I mean, it seems it's actually tangibly sort of perceptibly close for the first time within touching distance in our working lives. Does that ultimately, you know, I had David Howden on the show last year saying, ultimately, is going to mean that there's no commission. We're going to be, you know, go the way of stockbroking that we started $20, $25 trade back in the old days, then it went online, and it was seven. And then now we've got Robin Hood and it's zero. Do you think David said he's preparing his business to be that? to be ready for that world at some point in the future. So do you think, is that an inevitable trend that broken commission will trend to zero and then you'll obviously have to go 100% fee?
2: Yeah, I think that the clients will drive that outcome. Clients are always going to want our advice. And so how they pay for that advice, you know, they'll decide that.
0: You mentioned about obviously yet being only three years in this role. Yeah. And obviously that has come about as a result of M&A activity. I certainly got a sense when that deal got across the line and you were appointed that there was a tangible attempt to build something to, rather than impose one culture on another, you wanted to sort of take the best of both of those worlds and make a third culture that was something unique out of those. Do you think you've succeeded in doing that, making something a bit different?
2: Um, I think probably what's happened is what happens any time you put two pretty strong cultures together. And I know a lot's been made of these two very different cultures. But actually, you get in and you find out the the things that are uniting you, stuff like we're just trying to get the best results we can for our clients. Those are so strong that how you get there isn't as important. And so, mm, is it a third culture? It might be. But I mean, it's a really united group of people. And COVID, for some reason, has really cemented that because you have so much more time to connect with people and spend time with people. And we've really had, you know, a tough start, but a really great time.
0: And obviously we've had other there was other very large mooted MA in the last two year period after JLT MMC. All the armchair observers would have said that MMC and your business particularly would have been a beneficiary, a net beneficiary of all the turbulence that was unleashed by the mooted Willis Aeon get together is that really fair to say is easy we're just being lazy by saying obviously you must have been a net beneficiary of it
2: no Um, i i don't think you're being lazy if you unleash turbulence maybe it just affects everybody yeah that's maybe that's true but certainly um that turbulent period 2020 2021 you know we've hired more people in 2021 probably than we ever have before and we've got some incredible people that I don't know if we would have had the opportunity to hire, but for the sort of um, dislocation in the market. And so we feel really fortunate. And I think that they're not all here yet, but a lot of them are. And it's really great for the business, right, to get a bunch of new people in as well.
0: And it bodes well for growth here in London and everywhere else, I presume, that you must be penciling in quite strong growth. I mean, going back to the beginning theme. So how happy do you feel about the health of the global specialty in the global placement space. Do you feel that, you know, we're gonna be satisfying all this client demand and that everyone's gonna be in growth and everyone's gonna eventually be happier.
2: <laughs> um yeah, I think everybody's it's a lot of words yeah, in your mouth actually. I think everybody's gonna be happier. I think twenty one was great for us and for a lot of people. And just in terms of opportunity and we'll be able to kind of capitalize on that opportunity and continue to do so in twenty two. And It's a pretty exciting time to be here and to have this level of kind of global resource and now to have even more expertise than we had before. So I do feel really optimistic about continued growth in 22 and maybe more importantly, really getting together what we need to get together in conjunction with the market too to try to solve some of these really big problems like that's what their expectation is. And so that feels like a real important obligation for us.
0: And you were more optimistic about insurance sort of reversing that trend of, we've obviously spent a lot of the last 10 years sort of looking at insurance becoming less relevant in the global economy because of the fact that the global economy has become less tangible and that kind of thing. So you're going to be looking at some of these really big problems. Do you think we've got more of a chance of solving yes, them?
2: Yes, I do. And And I think that our industry needs to be really cognizant about what clients themselves have learned during COVID. They've kind of tested their own resilience a little bit. Maybe they found themselves a little bit more resilient than they thought they were. So our products need to be really good and really compelling to continue to make them attractive to clients. And so that's really our focus is, are these products uh, the best products that we can sell to our clients? And are they solving an important problem?
0: Yeah, with a good risk transfer at a reasonable price. Exactly. And the biggest threat to that from all this conversation I've had with you, again, putting words in your mouth, would I be right to summarize that the biggest threat to all of that is probably the clients themselves seeing that they're not getting the value from the insurance market anymore and then looking to retain that, retain, you know, within captives and that kind of thing, self-insurance, because they've got all this data. They've got so much more data than they used to have.
2: Yeah, I think that not buying is a perennial threat, but really the you know, what we're kind of going more towards um, at Marsh overall is really that kind of blended advisory piece. And so, you know, our clients are expecting so much more from us than the transaction. And so that's where we can create a lot of value as well. So that's also an area of focus.
0: And it doesn't matter to OMC because... Presume you will be managing the captive as well as doing their specialty placement anyway from an OMC perspective. You're probably agnostic about it, I presume.
2: Yeah, well, we're we're going for whatever's best for, the, for the, the, client. the client, yeah.
0: That's really, really good. I've really enjoyed talking to you, Lucy. I wish we could go on for a bit longer, but I think you've got a meeting coming up. So I don't want to hold you back from that because I think if it's a town hall, I think you should probably <laughs> be holding it. So thank you so much. Oh, I've really, really enjoyed chatting yeah, to you. Yeah, me
2: too. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Thanks for coming on the show. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure.